Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message in Habakkuk is really a part two from last Sunday, where we encountered God's reply to the prophet's complaints. However, this morning, we're going to take a more microscopic view of the center of God's revelation to Habakkuk and trace out how that message gets applied throughout the whole New Testament. What we will find is a continuity between the pages of God's Word that points directly at Jesus and the transformation that the Spirit of God brings in the lives of believers. Thanks for listening. Well, I found myself early this week firing up the plow truck. Anyone else with me? A little bit of snow that we had. wasn't too bad, a couple inches. And I took the keys, and as I stuck them in the ignition, I gave it a crank, and I saw the light on the dash come on, and the truck went clink. Oh, try again. Click. Has that ever happened to you? Now, my truck had a battery. Oh, it had one. But that battery was a dead battery. Now, what good is it to have a battery if the battery's dead? You could claim all day long that it has everything it needs and that it's fine. Look, it's sitting right there. But if the battery is not alive, if it's not a living battery, that truck's not going to do you any good. That plow won't do you any good. It has to be a living battery, not a dead battery. There's a metaphor here for the Christian faith. Because many people might claim they have faith, but if your faith is not living... If it's not active and visible and speaking into your life the truth of God's love for you that you then show forth, you have a dead faith. And a dead faith cannot save you. It will do you no good. Today we're going to be looking at, I think, what is one of the most important verses in the entire Old Testament. Uh, We hinted towards it. We we kind of skimmed over the surface last week. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The whole argument, the conversation between the prophet and God has been leading up to this one verse. And then this one verse becomes the the crux, the, the hinge, the verse that the New Testament writers then use to encourage the church and teach the church. So this is a critical, critical passage for us. And so for today, what we're going to do is I'm going to read through that passage uh, real quick, and then I'm going to highlight for us where the New Testament writers use Habakkuk 2.4 and the way in which they use it. Uh, In in order for us to study this this morning, I want to make sure that you're prepared to know we're going to talk about some theology. So make sure you brought your pillows this morning, but that's we're going to get through it together. Just a little bit of theology, because I think what we will find is that this little treasure that's just hidden, covered in the Old Testament, in the words of this tiny little prophetic book are going to be for you and I the most important thing that you can hear in your Christian faith, in your Christian walk. God is going to ask you to walk not by sight, but by faith. Maybe he's doing that already in your life. Maybe you've already seen the ways in which God has blessed you because you are willing to trust him, even when it seems absurd, even when it seems impossible. Maybe that's already going on, but if it isn't, I promise you, as a child of God, he is going to do this. 
He is going to bring times in your life where you don't have the answer. You don't know what to do. And he's going to say, trust me, trust me, walk with me. And as you and I do, as we learn to walk by faith, you'll see yourself flourish in Christ. To be able to give glory to God in a way that you were never able to earlier. You heard maybe at the children's sermon, Tom's story of getting lost in the woods, right? That's a good example of having to walk by faith, not knowing. And sure enough, he was okay. And it was all okay. But you don't know that in the moment. You feel like panicking in the moment. Any amens with me this morning? Like, yeah, we're there. I'm there. I know what that feels like. So this is a really important verse for us to pay attention to. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. We're going to touch on a little bit of review, and then we're going to move on uh, to some key observations, just two of them, and some key conclusions. Again, just two of them. So pay close attention for those. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. These are the words of God in response to Habakkuk's complaint. Um, And just before I read it too, let me make sure in case you're just catching up with us here, let me give you the... Just a short paraphrase of this. Habakkuk looks around at God's people and says, wickedness. God's people are acting unjustly. And so Habakkuk sees that and he's like, God, you see this? You're okay with this? You're okay with the way they treat one another? And God's reply is, I'm going to do something you're not going to believe. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to judge them. And Habakkuk wasn't ready for that answer. So then Habakkuk's like, the who? You're going you're gonna to raise up the Babylonians? So I, I get that you're not cool with injustice before God's people, but how can you tolerate wickedness like the Babylonians? That's, the, that's where we're at in the story. And we talked about the word theophany a little bit last week. This is our answer to why evil persists. Why is there suffering in the world, right? Well, you're going to see that answer again this morning. All right, y'all with me? Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 4. God says, see, he's puffed up. Remember, that word means like swelled up, ready to pop. See, he's puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He's arrogant, never at rest, because he's as greedy as the grave. And like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. That's it. Two, two short verses. It's really verse 4 that we'll pay closest attention to. Uh, the first thing that I want you to see is that Habakkuk, as he brings his concern before God, how in the world do you tolerate wicked people? God's answer is, I don't. I'm not tolerating wicked people. And what you need to understand, Habakkuk, is that they are actually receiving in themselves my wrath. Their evil, their actions, are their punishment. There is for the wicked person, the treacherous, the one who is unrighteous, rebelling against God, there is a present judgment in their lives on virtue of the evil they possess. That is God's judgment. Presently, and there will come a great day of judgment on Jesus' return, when he separates the goats and the sheep for eternal punishment. So make sure that we lock this in. There's no version of our faith that says, oh, God, God's cool with evil. God doesn't care about suffering. No, he, he doesn't tolerate it. He doesn't. So our very first observation is that the wicked are consumed by evil. 
Verse 4 starts out by highlighting the Babylonians in reference. Take a look at them. Remember Habakkuk's like, they're like fishermen. They just keep taking fish in their nets over and over. And they just keep eating them and devouring them and devouring them. And are you, are you okay with that, God? And God's like, well, take a look. As they keep eating, what keeps happening to them? They just keep swelling and swelling until they're about to pop. Um, it makes me think of that old picture. Do you ever see a picture of a snake eating its tail? Oh, yeah. you, you, right? What, what a dummy, huh? <laughs> well, what's the snake thinking? Ooh, yum. Mm, more yum. I'm going to have more. But really, what's he doing the whole time? He's destroying himself. So by this ever-increasing desire for more, for more, the greed that's woven up within the heart of the wicked is actually destroying them. And this is what he says in verse 5. Take a look. Indeed, wine betrays him. There's a bit of a Hebrew question here, whether that's supposed to be wine or wealth. Um, I'm fine with either one because the principle remains. For the person who wants more wine, they think it's a good idea, right? It's a good idea. Let me take another cup. Still feel fine. Until what? Until they don't feel fine anymore. Because what they thought was good actually was destructive. Uh, look at how greed continues. Because he's as greedy as the grave. Death is never satisfied. He gathers more. All the peoples takes captive all the nations. You, you think you want more? You think more is actually going to make it so that you find satisfaction? Uh, do you guys remember the story Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, right? Scrooge. What a great name, right? Scrooge. I, I, I think there's, there's no better uh, epitome of the actual result of somebody who desires more for themselves, right? And, and, and you see it in that story, right? Because the more he has, the, the less freedom he has, the less love he has. And so what you and I need to make sure that we understand is that God is not tolerating wicked people. He doesn't tolerate them. They are receiving already in themselves the due punishment of their decisions. This is, a, this is a New Testament teaching as well. And just for sake of time, we won't turn there. But I hope to just suffice that you understand this is exactly what God's response is. It's the first observation that you and I need to make sure that we nail down, down in understanding this. Uh, the wicked are consumed by evil. The second observation has to do with the righteous. And we need, to, we need to do a little bit of work here because our English translation doesn't quite get us all the way. In verse 4, the text says, but the righteous will live by his faith. The Hebrew word here for faith, uh, it means faithfulness. It means integrity. It, it really means the, the kind of heart that seeks to follow and glorify God. That's what faithfulness means, even though your English version might just say the word faith. Uh, it's helpful. That's good. But it, we need to unpack that a little bit more because what I want to show you is the core root of the problem we already discovered from last week is not just your actions. It's the root of your actions. Where do your actions come from? They all come from the heart, right? And so, so greed for the wicked person is actually an arrow pointing in the direction of, right? When you're greedy, you want more for who? Not my neighbor, right? I, I want more for me. I, this is the direction of glory for those who are wicked. It's, it's more for myself. 
And as we look at the righteous now, what we will see that is that faithfulness is the, is the reversal of that arrow. That the root of my actions of integrity, the root of my actions of faithfulness, the root of my actions to serve God actually come from a faith in God. But the Hebrew word is not faith, it's faithfulness. The New Testament writers understood this. And before we get into the verses that quote directly from Habakkuk 2.4, I want us to look at a passage in the New Testament that unpacks this concept of a visible faith. Uh, this comes from James chapter 2. So if you hold your spot in Habakkuk and flip your way into the New Testament, James chapter 2, uh, we're going to look at uh, four short verses uh, that help us to see what God means when he talks about your faith. In the same way that you might have a battery in your plow truck, you might have faith. None of that matters. Do you know what does? Do you know what does matter? Is the battery alive or dead? And do you know what matters about faith? Is your faith alive or is it dead? James chapter 2. Page 1722, I have it here on the screen as well. James 2, starting in verse 14, James writes to the church, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds? By the way, I want to make sure that you're understanding deeds here is not referring to uh, ritualistic works of righteousness. That's not what deeds mean. What he means are anything visible of your faith. That's what deeds means. So what good is it to just say, I have faith, but nobody ever can see it. Like, I never see your faith lived out. You're claiming something uh, ethereal in your life, not anything physical in your life. Has no deeds. Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sisters without clothes and daily food. Bummer, right? That'd be a bummer. And one of you says, well, go in peace. I hope you keep warm. Hope you find a sandwich somewhere. But you do nothing about their physical deeds. What good is that? What what, what good is that to be like, oh, I'll pray for you. But you're not going to do anything? Remember Jesus' words? If you have two tunics, share one of those. Right? Even if it's with an enemy, that'd be a visible action of your faith, right? In the same way, James says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it's dead. It's dead. And here's the rhetorical question right in the middle. Can such a faith save you? Can that faith save you? What James would argue is, no, you, you, you are deceiving yourself. And that's exactly the message of Habakkuk 2.4. So go with me back again to Habakkuk if you're on, if you're on board with this, right? The righteous by faithfulness by evidencing the faith that exists within them by the grace of God and revealing it that is how you will live how you will be saved by that kind of faith because that's a faith that's living it's alive it's not a dead faith now as you and I see this as the two primary observations of faithfulness that is a type of godly conduct make sure you don't take it out of Habakkuk remember Habakkuk is afraid of what people the Babylonians are coming. Now, are they 
Do the, do the Babylonians love God? Are the Babylonians going to church? No. So make sure that you understand that the context of Habakkuk is, is examining this faith that should be in the Christ follower, that should be in the one who fears God, as contrasted with the Babylonians, as contrasted with the world. I want to make sure you understand this, because if, if you don't have any way of ever calibrating, for example, if I looked at your life, a worshiper of God and a unbeliever, and I just stuck them side by side, would there be a difference? I like that answer. Ho- hopefully. Hopefully there would be. But that, that's, ex- that's, the, that's the context here. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a faithfulness that is an evidence of godly conduct as contrasted with the, the outside world that doesn't worship God at all. So this will lead us to a couple of conclusions. Just two, but the first one has three parts. The first is this. A saving faith is a living faith. Meaning, it's, it's evidential. That kind of faith will save you. A saving faith has to be a living faith. Or to put it another way, uh, faith that can save you is the kind of faith that is alive in Christ. I'm just going to repeat that again. The kind of faith that can save you is the kind of faith that is alive in Christ. But I think as I, as I look at even my own experience and if I take evaluation over the church, you know, there's a lot of things that cause our batteries to go dead, is there not? Right? There's a lot of things that cause the unbeliever to say, you know what, I, I've heard of Jesus, I really don't want anything to do with him. I think the first place is when it comes to a kind of gospel that is, hey, try harder, man, you need to do better. Now, when's the last time you had a dead battery on your car and you just yelled at it? Did that work? It's not going to work, right? This, this, incidentally, is the very first place that Martin Luther, back at the time of the Reformation, was confused. This was his greatest confusion. Because as he looked at the church, it was... I mean, it was super holy. And it was separated from the common people who didn't understand. And Luther felt like God is just judging us. Like, and, and there's nothing I can do. So he would try harder. He would confess for hours his sins, thinking, I just need to be, just make myself right with God. And then God will love me. He misunderstood the righteousness of God as this kind of evil judgment of God over people. And I want to say, I think that still exists today. I think that there are people who don't want anything to do with church because they just think, Man, God's a bully. And there's evil. I've heard this from atheists before. I can't worship a God who has the power to save little kids, but instead gives them cancer. I can't worship that God. And we would all be like, that's not the God we worship. Like God's not giving people cancer. Evil and sin is the corruption that has done that. But I think that's the first place, is this misunderstanding of the righteousness of God standing in judgment over us. I think that's the first problem. Second problem, I think, has to do with a kind of hypocrisy within the church. Ooh. You guys ready this morning? Fake smiles. Fake hugs. Fake handshakes. Do you know what I find not very cool? Is that we, for years or months, would worship together and call each other a family... But then as soon as something goes wrong, we bail on each other. The world looks at that and they say, you know, I don't think I want anything to do with you people. 
you, you, you act one way on Sunday, but then I hear about, you went, you went to the bar? I saw you at the bar. You, or you went wherever it was. Like there is this duplicity in our lives that shows this really isn't a family at all. And if you are never welcomed in to feel like there is a community that is for you, not for you in affirmation of your sin, like accept me how I want to be accepted, but a kind of affirmation that says you're a sinner, you're welcome. Come on in. I'm a sinner too. There's grace here. We have enough for you. There's, there's more. There's plenty to go around. And come in and let us be united together as a family. But I fear that for a lot of Christians, that's just not the case. That they look at the church and it's a holier-than-thou club that's made up of a bunch of facades and fakes. We got to be careful with that, right? Are you guys with me? I, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to be that to be the display here. I want authentic, genuine, I will fight for you. That needs to be the character, characteristic of God's people. Uh, third reason, let me just give you one last one. Why I think people want nothing to do with God is because they start out with good intentions Maybe you felt like this before, right? I mean, I sing beautifully. <laughs> and I know that's why most people come, right? To hear me sing. So you can start off with really good intentions to come to church, but then, you know, work's getting hard and the kids have this uh, schedule thing coming up and we just can't find any other place in the calendar. And I know we've got the community meal coming up, but you won't believe the paperwork that has stacked up. And then if we don't get that done, we're not going to get to vacation. And I'm already stressed out because of bills and this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And soon God is just this extra thing. And church is like this thing that I know I feel guilty about. Like I probably should be going to church, but I haven't been there. So I can't go now because people, right? You ever, you ever been there? Jesus talks about this in the parable of the soils, right? There, there are these cares of the world that just choke. They choke life. They choke us out and we just feel like I, it's not worth it. I can't continue. Do you know what the answer to all three of those is? It's faith. It's faith. So we need to have a, a living faith. The New Testament writers, they understand this. And this verse, Habakkuk 2.4, is quoted Three times word for word in the New Testament. However, watch this now. Each time it's slightly emphasized differently. So that's what we're going to look at. All right. The first one comes in Romans. Romans chapter one. Paul says, this is like his opening statement in his letter. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed. It's a righteousness that's by faith from first to last, just as it's written. And look what Paul does. He flips to Habakkuk and he says, the righteous will live by faith. The, the emphasis here is righteousness. This is Paul's emphasis. He's reading the prophet in the Old Testament. He knows the issue between the, the wicked Babylonians who are coming and he says, yeah, if you're going to be declared as righteous, that's going to come by faith. And that's what the gospel reveals. Now, we have a word for this. Theologically, there's a word. So here's your first big word. It's called justification. Justification. The doctrine of justification in our study here is going to teach us that a living faith delivers righteousness from God. Not 
derived from you. Do you know how to make a hairdryer work? Uh, Y'all know. Yeah, that's exactly right. You have to plug it in. Can you make the hairdryer work without plugging it in? Can you make the electricity? No. I I need an outside source. It's, It's dead until I plug it in. But when I plug it in, there's power that makes it work. It's amazing. I don't know if you guys knew that. Do you know that? A hair dryer? I know. Okay, I'm off subject here. Do you get the point, though? It doesn't come from you. Do you hear me? It does not come from you. It comes from God. But that living faith is the evidence of God's righteousness. And that word justification means that you now have your sins covered. You now have been captured by God. And it's written on your account, paid. Man, that's worth an amen, right? It's written on your account, paid. Amen. Amen. You're justified. But it doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from you. Martin Luther needed to know that. This is how Paul addresses it to the Philippians. He says, what's more, I consider everything a loss. Everything here has to do with how cool he thinks he is, his own righteousness, his own pedigree, how awesome the apostle Paul thought he was. All of it to him now is a loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them rubbish, garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Watch this now. Not having a righteousness of my own. Doesn't come from Paul. Doesn't come from me. Or from the law, his obedience to the law. But that which is through, what's the word? It's through faith. It's through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and that is found on the basis of faith. That word is justification. And that comes from Habakkuk 2.4. All right, that's our first one out of Romans. Let's look at our second one now. There's another New Testament book in the book of Galatians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul once more is going to reach back into Habakkuk and quote word for word this verse. But again, he's going to do so in a different emphasis. So now instead of righteousness, he's going to emphasize the concept of life. This is what he says in Galatians chapter 3. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God. Because... Because you might ask Paul, how do you know that? And he says, because that's what Habakkuk says. See? The righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us. That's a beautiful word there. Redeemed means to purchase back for the purpose of living. You can just think in your mind, saved, salvation. That's a good synonym here for redeemed. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us, again, saved us, right? Uh, In order that the blessing, watch this now, the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Now, I don't know if you were expecting that little turn as Paul is speaking to the Galatians. Right? He's talking about redeeming you, but then he brings up Abraham? I thought we were talking about Gentiles here. Why are you bringing up Father Abraham into this story? The reason is so that you and I as Gentiles might receive the promise of the Spirit. Because here's the deal. God made a promise to somebody. Question, yes or no, does God keep his promises? Yes. He keeps his promises. He made a promise to Abraham. And now because of Jesus redeeming you from the curse, you now have access to God's promises. 
There's a word for this, another theological word. It's called adoption. You've been adopted. You guys remember the, story, the song when you were little kids? Father Abraham had many sons. Am I the only one who knows this song? Uh, right hand. Okay, we won't sing the whole. We'll do it another time. That'll be extra credit later. A living faith? What is it? It's the evidence of adoption. If you have a faith that's alive, that is evidence that you belong to God's family. You belong. You're, you're, you're not fake smiles, fake hugs. You're not fake brothers and fake sisters. You're actually a family. You're in God's household. You have a single heavenly father because he calls you his own. He has adopted you. It's beautiful. Um, when I was serving in the Caribbean, uh, every now and then we'd go down to the shore for snorkeling or just looking for little treasures. And there was this one section that was very rocky. And the night before, there were these big waves and a storm. And I saw this tide pool kind of spot of water in a rock that was way up high. So high because a wave knocked it all the way up. And inside this tiny little pool was a, was a fish. A little, it's a minnow, a little pilcher minnow, we call him. We'd use him for bait. But he, he, he tried to swim this way and then there's nothing there. So he swam back and, and he was stuck. And that water level and that hot sun was starting to dry up. Doesn't look good for this guy. Well, I just recently had got a fish tank. So you know what I did? I adopted him. <laughs> and I brought him into my house. And do you know what he had in my house? He had food. He had little friends to play with. It was awesome. He was, he was mine. Look, without, without God, you're in a pool of water that's drying up. It doesn't look good. You could, you could think I'm fine. It might, you might deceive yourself as you hit your nose into the, every corner. But what you really need is adoption. Uh, this is how the word, this gets phrased a little further in Galatians. Paul says this in chapter 4. He says, but when the set time had fully come, like at the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. You can, you can underline that phrase, under the law, and just write in the margin, in a tiny little tide pool. You're in trouble. Doesn't look good for you. He did this that we might receive adoption to sonship. So there is a reality for us in a living faith. It's evidence of God's adoption, and it has to change how then we treat one another and live with one another. All right, one last passage. Y'all still with me? Remember, I said three New Testament passages where this one little Habakkuk verse is quoted. It's so important that we pay attention to it. The last one comes from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. I just have a couple of verses here. The writer of the book of Hebrews says to the church, so don't lose, don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he's promised for. In just a very little while, he who is coming will come and not delay and, but my righteous one will live by faith. What's the emphasis this time? It's not righteousness. It's not live like in Galatians. It's faith this time. He says, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we don't belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we belong to those who have faith and are saved. What chapter in Hebrews comes after chapter 10? 
You all paid attention. That's right. 11. Do you know what chapter 11 is all about in the book of Hebrews? It's all about faith. Every single person in Hebrews 11 lived and walked with the Lord by faith and did not receive what was promised, and yet they walked. It was hard. They, didn't, they looked like idiots compared to the world around them. But they believed in God. They trusted in God, and so they walked by faith. And where in the world does the writer of Hebrews get his justification to teach such a truth? Do you know where he finds it? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, emphasizing faith. Um, I think I've shared this uh, before. Uh, I want to give you the, the term for this was perseverance. Per- perseverance is this final theological category. And uh, I, want, I want to characterize it as, as this concept of watching, like w- watching even when it's hard, right? So a living faith watches for Jesus even when you wait for Jesus. Do you ever, do you ever feel like you're tired of waiting, right? Anyone ever feel like a four-year-old in the back of a car? Come on, Jesus. Are we there yet? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes when life gets hard, you're going to feel like that. Do you know what a living faith will do? A living faith will keep watching, even when it's hard. And I just have to give you the picture of our dog again, because our dog loves my wife so much that whenever she leaves, this is what he does. He is so confident that she will what? She's coming back. She's coming back. And I'm going to bark at anyone who's not her. And I'm going to keep watching. And the other dog doesn't even care. The puppy, she doesn't even care, right? But Tappy here, he's always going to watch. These are the words that the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 12. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by all of these people who had faith, this cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, like the Babylonians have, like the world has. Get rid of it. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. How? By fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Just, just like my little dog's doing, right? I'm watching. I'm watching. And that's what gives me hope. I'm watching while I wait. Perseverance is a living faith that watches while you wait for Jesus. Okay, so what do we... You guys with me on this? You're, we're all good? I, I want to share with you, though, there's a second conclusion. The first conclusion is this. A saving faith is a living faith. You've seen how that has worked out in the New Testament in regards to justification, in regards to adoption, and in regards to perseverance. So let's put it all together. Let's put it together for a conclusion. And it's that a living faith in Jesus secures God's promise of an everlasting, that's perseverance, and a right relationship, that's righteousness, that's justification, with God as his child. That's adoption. That is really, really good news. But what that implies for you and I is that it is impossible for you then to have access to this security if you're driving around with a dead battery. If you're just like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but there's no evidence of it. You may be fooling yourself and others, but you are not fooling God. Your faith needs to be alive, remember? What does Habakkuk say? But my righteous one will live by his faithfulness. And that faithfulness is rooted in the faith of our heart, but it's evidenced in our lives. All right, so how are we going to apply this? How do we have? This is the question. How do I have a living faith? I want to give you four ways. Key in on these, church, right? Focus in on these because this is how you have a living faith. First is this. A living faith begins with a trust and a confidence in God's promise. 
Go back with me again to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is standing on the ramparts. He's watching for God's answer because he knows what evil people are coming. Babylonians are coming, right? But he believes God. Habakkuk believes God. He believes in God's promises. And so, even when it's hard, he's going to watch. and He's going to wait. And he's going to hold on. And this is really what you see if you look back in chapter 2 is the confidence in God's word and revelation. So if you look back with me in chapter 2, he says in verse 2, write down the revelation, make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of to the end, meaning that it will prove to be true. It will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. I submit to you this. The number one way you can charge your battery if you have a bit of a dead battery because you either think God's righteousness is judgment or these Christians are all fake, or if you think I'm just too busy, the number one way you can recharge your battery is if you start trusting in God's promises. I, tr- I trust. I'm going to trust what God has said, even when it's hard. Starts there. Number two, a living faith is evidenced by your behavior, character, and confession as contrasted with the wicked. And so remember that idea? If we held you up next to your neighbor... If we looked at the unbeliever and the believer, would there be enough evidence to convict you as a Christian? So that as the angels come with their harvest uh, command and the sickle in their hand, that they're going to know, oh, no, no, this is a sheep of God right here. This is a sheep of God. This is not one of the goats. Now, I, I put this in here because it has to be behavior, but behavior is rooted in character, and I know all of you are perfect, right? Everyone's perfect. No, part of the problem is if God destroys the wicked, he destroys you too. And so there's one other word that's really critical in here. It's the word confession. It's the word confession. So when we sin, and we do sin, the world doesn't confess. The Babylonians aren't getting down on their knees saying, Lord, I've wronged you. I've sinned against you. Your justice over me is right, and yet I cry out for your mercy. Babylonians don't do that. Who, who does that? We do. We do that. So do you see the contrast? You need to make sure that that is part of the evidence of a living faith. Number three, a living faith believes even in the face of the impossible, in the face of the absurd, and in the face of the confusing. This is a really, really important one because, at least for me, I'm the type of person that wants to have all the answers before I make a step, right? I want to know that it's all taken care of. I want assurances and insurance, right? I want to make sure whatever I'm putting in, I'm going to get my return back. And God says, why do you love yourself so much and don't trust me? Trust me. Trust me. Even when it's like, there's no answer. I don't know what to do. And this is exactly the answer that Habakkuk needs because there is no answer for Babylon. For Habakkuk, God's got it though. They're going to destroy themselves like a snake eating their own tail. They're going to consume themselves. You live righteously by your faithfulness. And that starts by believing, watching, even when it's, I don't get it. I'm confused. In fact, I might disagree. But I'm going to believe anyways. I'm going to trust God. Number four, a living faith is also then a life of worship. Is it, is it a Sunday morning of worship? Is it one hour of worship? What is it? It's a life of worship. And I want to show you again back in verse 4, contrast that with the evil, the wicked ones. Remember, see, he's puffed up. Why? Do you see what it says in verse 4? 
because his desires are not upright. When my question for you is, what do you desire? What do you desire most of all? Because if it's not Jesus, you're going to lose it. Whatever it is, whatever you desire, most of all, if it isn't Jesus, it will break or burn or get stolen. So what we need to do to have a living faith is have our entire lives be shaded with this understanding of a living faith. I worship God, not just Sunday morning. I'm worshiping him when I'm screaming at my TV when the Packers are. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe I got to work on that, right? Do you get the point, right? Do you, do you see the importance? When I'm driving down the road and that car cuts me off. Well, I worship God at church, but right now. <laughs> no, no. You need a life because those desires are what characterize either you being one of God's family or not one of God's family.